Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to another episode of FPOG, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. This week, we're talking about life insurance, really taking a step back and answer the question, what are you using life insurance to solve for? Talking about the different types of insurance and what may work and how to know when you're self-insured. Justin, as we were kind of prepping for this conversation, there was a great tweet by Moses Kagan that kind of summarized some of these ideas uh, and really kind of framed this in a great in a great way. Do you have that? Do you have that handy? Yes, I do. Let's uh, pull it up. Okay, so Moses Kagan. This is at Moses Kagan. Uh, I'm sure we can throw it in the show notes as well. Uh, but he just said the game. In case no one took the time to explain it to you. As quickly and efficiently as possible, transmute your labor into ownership of scarce and or productive assets. So again, Moses Kagan is just saying the game is this. As quickly and efficiently as possible, transmute your labor. So trade, put, invest, take your labor and uh, put it into uh, acquiring the ownership of scarce and or productive assets. Right. And why does that relate to insurance, right? That one of the single biggest things that will get in the way of that is the inability to to monetize your resources or to for your human capital not to produce its future earnings because of an untimely death or disability. And, and we'll probably have another conversation about disability because you know, it's also one of the ways that you protect against your future earnings power, which the younger you are, the larger of the pie that is in terms of your future assets, right? It's not it's not something that's tangible, but your human capital and ability to grow it and use it to to get raises, to create economic output and to continue to position yourself for financial independence. That's that's the big driver, especially if you're younger. What do we say in our white papers? I think the exact line is maybe something like this. Your greatest asset in life is the present value of your future earnings. And so, I, you know, I think we focus on that uh, because if you're working at a large oil and gas company, there's so many uh, different different things going on with your income, your compensation. You might have equity compensation. You might have deferred compensation on top of regular compensation. And so your greatest asset financially is the present value of your future earnings and your benefits. And uh, why would we bring this up in the middle of an episode about life insurance? Because we want to take a step back and and first realize, what are we trying to achieve? So when we work with a uh, family who's retiring from an oil and gas company or just a somebody who's a professional currently, what are we trying to achieve? Well, we're, we're trying to think through what's your ideal future scenario and how do we how do we help you get there? And how do we use financial planning? How do we use sound wealth management to make your ideal future scenario a reality? So it's helpful to start with big picture. That's what you're doing. Your greatest asset is the present value of all of your ability to save and invest and grow wealth that could get you to financial freedom. And that Moses Kagan tweet really hits at that as well. That's really what you're trying to engage in. You're trying to trade your labor. You're trading your time in order to get assets that can get you to financial freedom. And so insurance uh, not just plays an important role. Uh, it's, It's pretty unique uh, because insurance, if you think about a timeline, 
and you think about kind of the uh, beginning or first half of your career, insurance is often uh, the most single most important thing in your financial life. I mean it literally. There's there's really nothing else more important. If you are 35 and you're married and you have some kids, there is likely nothing else that comes even close to making sure you have the insurance part of your financial plan right. Now, the odd thing is it's, you know, I I made a case that it's pretty important uh, for that stage of your life. But then later on in that time frame, if if you look at that, say, age 25 to age 65, towards the back half, back third, back quarter of that, uh, it actually becomes so unimportant that you hopefully don't even need to have it. And we're going to talk about that idea today as well. Yeah, it's really interesting because your need, right, when you join the workforce or even in your early 30s could be five or six X what it is 20 to 25 years later. So the need and the amount that you're covering really changes over time, which is which is interesting. And we'll get into some of the mechanics of way to accommodate that, like lat- like laddering insurance is, is being one of the ways to, to kind of consider that over time to help keep premiums reasonable. But really kind of so if you think about you know replacing your future earnings kind of a, a connected question to that when you're thinking of okay what are you solving for it's what's the scenario that you want to plan for in in the event of an untimely death right so this comes down to what amount of income do you need replaced are you a one income household are you a two income household is is your spouse likely to go back to work or unlikely to go back to work or currently working and maybe would want to would want to stop working in the event of that, or or take some serious time off. How do you feel about debt? Do you want to prepay all expenses, all liabilities, or all college funding? Right? How would your expenses change over time in the event that that you or someone you loved wasn't in the picture? Right? These are all considerations that that kind of go into thinking about. Okay, how much do I need both today? Because this is the potential largest outlay you can have, and over time. You know, I want to build on that. So a really simple question to ask to to help think through this idea. Are there people in your life that would be in a tremendous amount of trouble if uh, something happened to you and your income was no longer there? That's a great way to think about it. That question is a really helpful, clarifying question. Are there people in your life that, that would really be in a difficult spot financially if something happened to you and your income was no longer there? That is when you have an insurance need. Yeah, absolutely. And random aside, for that reason, we we have a decent amount of clients ask us about life insurance for children. And when you frame the frame the question in this way, there's not really a compelling reason to own it. Of course, you know, they have a lot of potential future earnings, right? Because their human capital is is the ripest and has a lot of future potentiality, but you know, a lot of opportunity, but there's no dependence on that human capital, right? So I, I think you made a great point, Justin, of, okay, what's the present value of that human capital and what can create the life I need? And what's the dependence on that human capital? And for that reason, when we think about children and life insurance, there's not really a compelling reason in in that sense. And, you know, really, we're just talking about life insurance coverage. And there are some potential estate planning considerations and some really nuanced things you can do there. And, and there are some tax treatment considerations that that are outside of the scope of this but but for that reason we really don't uh focus on insuring kids in light of this conversation in this framework 
Yep, that's a really great point. You know, if we did a kind of a 60 second overview, uh, let's take you or I, for example, take our situation and how it changes over time. Um, One thing that we've hit on already is that your need for life insurance changes drastically as you continue in life. Um, Take me for example. So I am married, I have three children and my children are pretty young. So let's back up How about we back up about 10, 15 years? Uh, 10, 15 years ago, I did not have any children. So I would make a case that I really didn't need life insurance at all at that point. There was nobody that, take that take that question, let's ask it to that situation. Are there people in my life at that time that really would have been in financial trouble had something happened to me and my income was no longer there? Uh, the answer is no, uh, there were not at that time. So I don't think I had an insurance need. Then I get married, I start having kids, and all of a sudden I have a huge insurance need. You know, I think we've mentioned this in an episode. Uh, My wife is going back to law school now, but she has been a stay-at-home mom for the past seven years. And so when you think about, are there people that are depending on my income? The answer, you know, is yes at this stage of life. And it has been yes. And then we want to ask the question, at what point would I be self-insured? Love that that framing. So self-insured is the goal eventually. So the answer to that is something we'll get to. But Ultimately, the the answer is when I have liquid assets that could allow us to live the exact life we want to live with the expenses that we have, then I'm starting to enter a territory where insurance is optional and wouldn't necessarily need it. Yeah. The only thing I would add is the exact future life we would want to live under the circumstances because that is it's a very different event. Your family dynamic is very different. Priorities would shift. Ability to work would shift. So yeah, that's the only nuance I would add there. But yeah, that's a, that's a great, great way to think about it. We've kind of framed the question, okay, what are you solving for, right? So we know what you're solving for. Now's a good time, Justin, to kind of talk about the types of insurance. So now that we've identified, okay, here's the need. How do you meet that need of kind of insulating your, your human capital from a potential untimely death that could really derail things. And I know you come from the insurance brokerage world, so you probably know more about this than I do, but let's talk to our listeners a little bit about cash value, what it is, uh, philosophical things of, of what, what we think about it, and then term insurance as well. But what, so let's start with, let's start with cash value insurance. That's great. Let's talk a little bit about, and, and there's so many different names for this, right? And uh, there are differences certainly. Um, and so we want to think about uh, term life insurance on one side and on a completely other side, we have cash value, permanent universal life insurance, permanent life insurance that has an investment component in addition to the insurance component. You know, let's start by saying that a lot of this podcast is thinking through the lens of most of our listeners are working at a major oil and gas company or a super major. Um, And so you're at a giant oil and gas company with a specific set of benefits that are relatively similar uh, to each other. And you have different life insurance benefits there. So when you think about what type of insurance uh, options you have available to you, a lot of you have probably been uh, pitched the idea of whole or cash value life insurance at some point. And the pitch typically goes something like this. Term insurance is good, but at the end of the term, you will have paid all these premiums. And at the end of that term, let's say it's a 20-year term, at the end of 20 years, you've paid all these premiums. And now you have nothing to show for it. You have no investments. You've put uh, all these premiums into it and the policy's done. It's gone. It vanishes. 
uh, and you've put all that money into it. What a waste. We would take a completely different approach. The perspective we would take on that is that that is uh, for 99% of people, that is the right decision. You should do term insurance. Uh, Dave Ramsey has a number of resources on this. He's probably uh, maybe more famous for this than any other of his uh, financial topics. And he has one of the most successful radio empires in the country financially. And so he tackles a lot of topics, but Dave Ramsey has really built a name for himself um, in part because of his strong opinions uh, that cash value permanent life insurance is not good and not necessary for the vast majority of people. We tend to agree uh, with that. So what is cash value? It's where you're buying insurance and you pay for an insurance insurance component, uh, but you also pay for a uh, cash value growing investment component alongside it. And they use the word dividends where the insurance company pays dividends, not the same as uh, you know Walmart or Coca-Cola, uh, it's common stock paying you a dividend. And so, you know, why do we not love it? Uh, well, we can include some resources on the show notes. Um, White Coat Investor has some incredible uh, research on this topic that we'll want to link to. White Coat Investor is a uh, blogger who has made an incredible network that basically is financial advice for medical professionals. And so he was a doctor, very high earning doctor who was sold a whole life insurance policy at a young age and did a bunch of research. And he he figured out that he he really got sold something pretty bad. And the reason these policies are sold is because a cash value permanent life insurance policy pays a commission that is several times higher than term insurance. And so he has some tremendous resources that we want to link to in the show notes, uh, but I want to I want to continue to give a quick overview of some of those ideas and thoughts. So, cash value insurance it does grow, and it's it's pitched as a very tax efficient vehicle. My rebuttal to it being tax efficient is that most of these policies for cash or permanent life insurance, I have reviewed several. So, I've met with several families coming, and a lot of them in the Woodlands area at oil and gas companies that have been sold policies from a nationwide massive insurance company. And these whole value policies, I'm thinking about three different examples. In each of the examples, they had been paying into it for about seven to nine years. They were in the policy for seven, eight, nine years paying premiums. And I mean, they were paying six, $700 a month. Uh, these were very expensive insurance policies. In each of these cases, they had paid you know tens of thousands of dollars into this policy and their cash value was still less than what they had put in. Um, so let's repeat that. The cash value that they had put in, and we're, we're in year eight or nine in these examples, and I'm thinking about three different vague examples. In each of these examples, their cash value in that whole life insurance product was less than what they had put in. And so you think about what's happened in the last nine years, and the market has nearly 3X'd. Uh, if you go back 12 years, the market's 4X'd. And so to have something where you're putting six, $700 a month into a product, and then nine years later, you're not able to see that it, it's grown not just more than your investment, but it should have grown drastically more than your cost basis, and you have less than what you've put in. And so I mentioned that to, to state something that needs to be a real key takeaway. Most whole life permanent cash value policies do not get in the green. So you do not have more in a cash balance than what you've put in in premiums often until year 15 to 20. So very long term. So one, not a great investment. 
so back to the original statement, um, you know, what are we trying to do when we help families that we serve? Uh, we're trying to think through, well, your greatest asset is all of these benefits and your future income and revenue streams. And we want to build independent wealth um, that can give you financial freedom. And the idea of having something that has a really low return over a 15-year period, and that's something that we could voluntarily avoid, let's avoid that. We're not interested in, in that type of time frame with those types of returns. Now, I do want to mention that around year 15 or 20, there is a uh, point of no return where if you've been in the policy for that long, it actually does become a reasonably okay investment and it does get a lot better in the next you know, 10 years. Um, so there is a chance if, you've, if you have a cash value life insurance policy and you've been in it for a long time, that could be okay to just continue. Uh, but if you've been in it, in it for say four or five years, there's a pretty decent reason to believe that, that you would want to get out and you would want to at least assess uh, the ability um, to get out and, and really ask what's in your best interests uh, there. And so, you know, if you think about that first option, cash value, permanent life insurance, it's a very low return, but it does eventually get better decades into the future. But let's back up. If we're just thinking through how do we help families reach financial independence, we want to see much, much higher returns. Insurance companies will even be honest and say that, well, over 40, 50 years, this could make five, six percent. And if we think about equities compared to bonds, compared to insurance, compared to cash, uh, compared to precious metals, compared to anything you want to compare it to, when we think about a 50-year time horizon, we really want to have our sights set on more than that. Um, while that's never guaranteed, we want to have our sights set on more. And Justin, the thing I would add there is like, in light of like liquidity, there should be a premium. Right. So, so if you think about Ooh, like, Oh, that is so good. A lot of so, private equity, venture capital, real right? estate, implications very, lot, there. very different, right. A very different return profile, right? Like you can have people aim for above market returns because they're giving up the flexibility to have daily liquidity and to be able to sell their stock on a publicly traded exchange in the event something changes life insurance, you know, it's not very liquid, right? So you would expect to be fairly compensated for the lack of liquidity, but in fact, you're not. You're taking private equity-like risk in terms of putting your cash away, but you're receiving fixed income-like returns, right? Because if you look at the balance sheet of insurers, like in a lot of the underlying investments, a lot of it's fixed income, right? And it has fixed income return-like properties and fee frictions that just make the return not very compelling. So it's just not philosophically aligned. And I would be weary of anything that, does everything, right? Is it good life insurance or a good investment? It's like, no, no, there should be two separate categories because because if you try to bunch if you try to bundle them together, it's actually really bad at both. It's the jack of all trades and the master of none, right? So and, and a lot of times from an insurance framing perspective, they'll say, hey, this is better than just leaving the money on the sidelines. Yeah, of course, but what how what if you compared that to purchasing term policy for the appropriate amount of time and then investing the the remainder because like you said cash value insurance is a lot more expensive than term so it's really helpful framing and and we're beating the insurance drum a little bit because it's one of those spots where it's very emotional and very delicate and there's a lot of fear and it's a financial decision so where all of those things intersect is ripe for misstepping or making an opportunity or having someone who could potentially take advantage of that because it's just such a that thought it's it's really heavy it's really heavy so is so as you're del is you're moving into that and just kind of comparing your options that's that's something to think about um it's just 
you're not getting fairly compensated and it's just really a, a generalist that isn't really good in either category when you compare it to the alternatives out there. I want to bring up two more really quick points. Tax efficiency. So a lot of times cash value insurance is sold as a uh, solution because it's so tax efficient. First thought is I can show you a laundry list of tax efficient investments because they're in the red in the first 10 years, right? I mean, my goodness, if, if you have an investment and it's it's worth less than what you've put into it 10 years later, uh, we would sell that and, and harvest the capital loss and, and use it against other gains as a tax asset. So that's not a uh, high bar to uh, pass uh, from that perspective. But then the second thing is asset protection. Uh, so sometimes this uh, insurance, cash value insurance can be sold as a means to store some of your wealth in a um, bucket that is protected from creditors. Uh, so let's say you get into an accident or, or whatever the case may be, and the court says it was your fault and the other person sues you. Well, um, some of your assets can be taken in a lawsuit and other assets like your primary residence, uh, your ERISA workplace retirement plans. In Texas, a lot of your retirement accounts are, are really in a pretty good spot. And annuities or insurance is also kind of a protected class there that uh, often can't be touched. And you know, my thought process there is that actually is a topic that we you know take seriously. If uh, if we're working with a family that has wealth um, outside of primary residence retirement plans, well into the seven figures, eight figures, we do want to start thinking about asset protection. Jared, I don't know if you have thoughts on like a hardline rule on that, but. Um, you know, my thought is uh, when non-retirement assets that that could be subject to a lawsuit or a creditor, when those assets hit, say, three or four million, I am starting to ask that question and think about that. Yeah. And, you know, this is from right. This is from framing the problem of preservation of human capital in the event of an untimely death. Right. Like so if the goal, which is different than that, is estate planning or you know, per creditor protection, right? Like how we think about insurance may be different, right? Because the because the goal is different. But the pri the primary situation we're solving for is the, is the preservation of the insurance against your human capital, right? And preserving your family's quality of life. So I totally agree with you that in some instances, it's just, it's a completely different conversation. We may look at insurance and some of these more complex policies in light of that conversation, but I agree with you in light of this one and just kind of the thing, you know, our North Star of what most of our clients are solving for when they think of insurance, kind of 1.0 blocking and tackling, the cash value just doesn't make sense. You just opened up that there is so much wisdom in what you just said. And I want to I want to be brief because we've got a lot of other topics we're excited to talk about with life insurance. But, um, you know, I mentioned 99 percent, I think, a few times that uh, cash value policies are not in the best interest of 99 percent of people. By the way, I am not saying that the top one percent needs cash value. Uh, no, I mean, just 99 percent of people across all sorts of wealth do not need cash value. But there are instances, there are some estate planning strategies that, that we would potentially very much endorse. And gosh, as legislation changes, uh, that actually could come back into play more. Some tax and estate planning strategies that could make sense there. And there are some asset protection strategies. But Jared, the point I want to make is I'm not against um, a certain insurance policy if it is gen or an annuity either. I'm not against an annuity if it is in your absolute best interest. If you're here, you're trying to get here, and if you're not watching us on video, my fingers are in two separate locations. If, if you're in spot A and you're trying to get to spot B, 
it's our job to ask the question, what's the best path to get you from spot A to spot B? And the, the beef that I have with a lot of these policies is that even if that is the right vehicle, we want to go to a different car maker and we can pick a better vehicle. Fidelity and Vanguard actually have incredible uh, deferred annuities. And if you fund them with a million dollars, the expense on that entire annuity is 10 basis points. That is 0.1%, one-tenth of 1%. Uh, so extremely low cost options that can do a lot of uh, the, the things that insurance salesmen would, would tell you their cash value policy can do. Yeah, that's a great point. Okay, so enough cash value propaganda. Uh, and I, I feel like that's, this isn't going to be the last time we talk about it. So, so that's cash value. That's one way you could solve it. And for reasons we talked about kind of may not be the best way to solve it. Let's talk about term insurance, what it is, why we like it, and how we think about it. Awesome. I'm going to give you a quick warning and then Jared, I'll let you define term insurance. So what, what term insurance is not is, uh, we want, we're, we want to see a fixed premium term policy, right? So we want to see a 15 year policy with a fixed premium. There are a lot of policies, uh, sometimes they're called variable term or sometimes they're called a uh, term 80. Um, we've seen that a lot. Uh, so the term 80 policy is kind of a term policy. The only problem is it's convertible to a whole life cash value policy. And every year that you get older, the term 80 uh, premium goes up. So it might be a really low cost premium if you bought the plan, if you bought the uh, policy in your 20s. But then fast forward and now you're 54 and you're not quite self-insured, but you're really close. But all of a sudden the premium is 10 times what it was 30 years ago. That is a problem. So term 80 is not uh, the term policy that we're talking about here. I would I would watch out for that. But Jared, you can uh, I'll let you give a, a definition. I, I keep telling our listeners uh, what to avoid. You can you can tell them what to look for. Hey, good cop, bad cop. I kind of like it. So but, but that framing is helpful because it is a fixed amount of life insurance coverage for a fixed amount of time with a fixed premium, fixed being the, being the operative word here. That's the easiest way to define what term insurance is. And there's two ways you could kind of get it, employer and private, and we'll talk about that in a second. But really, you get a certain amount of life insurance coverage. So for example, in a million dollar policy that would pay out in the event of an untimely death, the coverage amount would be a million dollars, the full duration of the time you, you have it. And you can set, you know, you could set parameters. So let's say 20 years. So you would have the policy all 20 years, a million dollars in coverage, and you would agree on a premium, and that's what you would pay over the life of that coverage. Um, and typically, right, from a life expectancy perspective, the longer you wait to purchase that premium, the higher the premium is probably going to be, right, just just due to life expectancy. And the longer your duration is, so, you know, the 20-year policy versus a 10-year policy, your premium's likely going to be higher because the insurer is taking an extended amount of risk on you. And so at a high level, you know, fixed being the operative, a fixed amount of coverage in the event you die at a fixed price for a fixed period of time. That was a really good definition. One thing I, I want you to just kind of repeat a little bit, how expensive is an insurance policy? Just generally speaking, how expensive is a life insurance policy for a 25-year-old compared to a 75-year-old? Oh, wow. Yeah, your monthly premium, will the difference will probably be in the hundreds of dollars, right? So and, and this is just like a ballpark. And potentially even thousands, yeah. Yeah, if you were, to, if you were 75 years old and you got a 20-year term insurance policy, you, your premium would likely be in the thousands of dollars. Um, uh, a month. Yeah. It would just yeah, be enormous. Per month. 
and you know, as someone under 30, if you were to get a million dollars of coverage, you could likely get it, you know, in the tens of dollars, like less than a hundred dollars a month easily. But so, yeah, that's, that's really important and kind of thinking about that because premiums can get expensive and when you do it matters, right? So like understanding what your coverage need is, how, how does that change over time? Right? Because if I need six X, the insurance today, I don't necessarily want to lock that up for 30 years, right? Because that coverage will eventually kind of my needle change as I continue to save and grow assets and things like that. So how should our listeners think, think about that in light of the age variance and, and the, the need variance over time? So, you know, I asked that question and, and I think it's important for us to talk about it because having that base understanding actuarial tables and, and how giant insurance companies set premiums, it is really important to understanding the role that it plays in your financial plan over time. And what's next on our list? I mean, this will come up. This is very, very relevant. Employer versus private policy. So what uh, what did we just do with a number of the families we serve? Uh, it was open enrollment. And so we looked through open enrollment options and uh, made recommendations and, and, and helped families think through what is what is necessary. What do I need? What do I not need? What do I not have to take advantage of? And so that that equation, just understanding an insurance policy is really cheap when you're 25, but an insurance policy when you're 75 is extraordinarily expensive. And so, you know, insurance companies obviously are quite intelligent and, and they've they've been in business for a long time because they understand that and they understand how to make premiums make sense. I mentioned 25 to 75, but I think it's more helpful if our listeners frame this um, cost of insurance compare not don't don't compare 25 to 75 compare 25 to 50 because insurance is also a lot more expensive at age 50. And the question that we want to answer now is, should you have a policy from your employer? So, you know, you have open enrollment, you can do maybe 3x and then you can have additional 4x. Uh, So all in you could have, say, I mean, a lot of times it's not overly difficult to get a couple million dollars in in life insurance coverage from your employer. So, Jared, what all do we want to touch on with this topic and, and how should we think about that? Yeah. So once you've kind of identified your your funding need and how much kind of coverage you want, and another strategy to do this is you could ladder. So like you could, you know, if you're if you're the younger person, I won't spend much time here because most of our people are retirees. You could buy a larger policy that you know is a ten year, and then a smaller one that's a twenty year, right? Because your coverage need years ten zero to ten is much higher than 10 to 20, right? And that may be better. That may be cheaper than purchasing one 20-year policy with the, the total amount of coverage need, right? So there's some strategies you can implement there, but related to whether you buy employer coverage or a private policy. So typically, employer policies are cheaper, right? Because they buy the coverage as a big group, so they get group pricing. So a lot of times, coverage you can get from your employer is it's going to be cheaper than what you could get on the public market. And sometimes there's no evidence of insurability needed or up to up to a certain amount. So, you know, if you have an underlying medical condition, that may be a great way to kind of take advantage of some additional coverage. But that being said, you're you are taking a risk, right? So, if you have an employment change and you still have a coverage need, that that coverage goes away. So, you'll now need to go to the market and purchase a policy. And is your policy going to be more or less expensive? Then had you gone and gotten it when you were originally making the decision more because your life is higher and actuarial table, you are a bigger liability to the life insurance company. So if you buy it through your employer, you get the discount, but 
if if you change employers, you lose that coverage. And you know, if you're going to become gainfully employed again, you may be able to get coverage through them, and hopefully the premiums are reasonable. But there's no certainty of that, right? And and on the other side, you know, if you're kind of worried about potential prospects with the company and and you have a decent insurance need, it could make sense to just pay the pay the higher premium. You know, oil and gas is something that has a high degree of velocity in terms of turnover and there's cyclicality to the business. So like a lot of our, a lot of our clients will change employers, even in, you know, some of their highest earning years or have a professional transition. So these are kind of some of the trade-offs and and things to think through as you debate, okay, what do I want my coverage through an employer paid policy or do I want a private policy? And it comes down to nothing in life is certain, but how confident are you that you'll continue to remain at your existing employer? What's the premium difference? And, you know, do I have any underlying conditions or are, are there any advantages and kind of just analyzing the trade-offs? Because it's, it's a personal decision for everybody. But those are kind of some of the things to think through as, as you're thinking about, you know, you've identified the need, which way, you know, term insurance is the way to go. Okay, I could buy it from these multiple avenues. Which one should I buy it from? Yeah, that's a great way to frame it. I think I would uh, add one more question to that. I'll be transparent with our listeners. Uh, we do help a lot of our, our the families and individuals we serve think through life insurance coverage with their employer. So we're not against it. It's just that you need to ask a specific question. And that is, do you really want to have your own business one day? Do you want to leave your employer, your large company, and be your own boss someday? If that's the reality, well, then, yeah, we definitely need to plan for your insurance needs uh, in light of the fact that that policy that is available in open enrollment is not going to be available for you know the next several decades at the uh, subsidized very low price. So do you want to be your own boss? Do you want to have your own company? If the answer is yes, it's a little bit more of a uh, you know problem-solving um, strategy where we need to understand the best way, what's in your best interest to make that life insurance uh, problem um, solved. Now, you know, Jared, you brought up a, a big topic. It's interesting to see, you know, just even the the how much volatility has happened in oil and gas within the last five years, how many job changes happen, uh, and understanding that that's not, you know, even when times are good, people change jobs. But I like framing it, or do you want to be your own boss? Do you want to have your own business someday? Or are you going to reach financial freedom by being a highly compensated individual at a large company? If it's second and, and you're going to work at a major oil and gas company, uh, maybe it's not the same one you're at today for the next, you know, however many years, but you are going to be in a similar situation. That can also be relatively okay to solve that life insurance problem through open enrollment, through subsidized insurance policies at work. Um, that can work. It's because, you know, certainly your policy, you may change companies and then your new company is going to have a similar benefit. Now, I want to bring this up before we move on to the next topic. Uh, my situation is a really good example. So I had uh, life insurance through my employer and then I left my employer and I started my own business. I had Gosh, I think it was 30 days to take my workplace policy, call the insurance company, and transfer it to an individual policy. Um, so that is available, but I just 
you know, want our listeners to understand that that is a very limited time window. And when you change employers, you're going to get a bunch of, you know, information and packets. Uh, so you've got a lot going on. When you do that, it's probably going to get lost in the shuffle and you may not remember this. Uh, so just try to try to remember if you need to take that insurance with you, you probably have 30 or 60 days to do it. And Justin, for our listeners, was that did, did they honor the premium that you had, like that group pricing or did the premium change? Or do you have to prove evidence of insurability? So glad you asked that. Uh, there was a portion of insurance that I was able to get without providing uh, evidence of insurability, but the premium was way higher. Um, so the premium increased and it was a, kind of a, a different you know, break point. At what point do I have to provide evidence of insurability? Okay. Um, yeah. And that's really kind of what all financial planning comes down to. You know, should I do A or B? The answer is usually it depends, right? You know, should I do employer or a private policy? The answer is it depends. But here's kind of some helpful frameworks to think about which one may make sense in your situation. Justin, so let's let's go ahead and move on to the last topic. So the the kind of the last question, um, and, and we get this from our clients a lot, and, and a lot of them come to us with coverage, even though they're self-insured or they don't know if they're self-insured is around self-insurance. Like, so at what point do, you know, do I know if I have sufficient coverage? Can I just cancel my policy? Cause I know with, you know, cash value, I can't, let's talk, let's talk a little bit about what it means to be self-insured and, and what the options are related to that. Yep. A uh, simple definition. You are self-insured when you've reached uh, financial freedom and you have enough assets uh, to provide income, to pay for your entire life without working. So work is now optional. Uh, financial freedom equals work is optional. And so I think that is the metric. Uh, Jared, I, I think, um, you know, 4% rule is kind of the most famous, most well-known. A 5% could be very well reasonable. 6% with excellent planning can also work. But if we're just working, if we're just trying to think through the easiest, most simple calculation to answer the question, are you in the ballpark? Um, I like 5%. Do you want to quickly explain that that equation and, and what we mean when we say that? Yeah, basically, you know, can I, can my assets, can I not outlive my assets, right? And we talk about, we talk about this idea uh, in like retirement planning and like what's a safe withdrawal rate. And you can go back and look at that episode and we, we'll link to it in the show notes. But, you know, at what point can I sustainably withdraw from my portfolio over a certain time period without depleting it, right? So it basically meets my future expenses. But Justin, for our oil and gas listeners, right? There's a lot of things that are nuanced kind of related to figuring out, okay, what is the current value of my assets? Like, how do you, like, how do you think about like the future value of a pension or stock unit, restricted stock units that have been granted, but not vested is, you know, for our oil and gas listeners and, you know, with their ESOPs and, and per stock purchase plans and all those things, how do, how should they be thinking about, okay, like what assets are incorporated and how do I assign a value to that? Great question. So compensation is not always uh, similar to other forms of compensation. So generally speaking, you might have your income and, you know, pretty straightforward. You make X amount per year, uh, but then you also may have um, stock equity compensation. Uh, you may have RSUs that vest over time. You also may have deferred compensation. Now, there's also a benefit that is not only different between every company, but every company will have different iterations of this benefit, and that is a pension. And so, you know, sometimes a, a pension calculation is just really linear, and it's it's pretty 
straightforward. If you work this many years and you, and you want to retire at 54 to 57 compared to 60 or 64, uh, it's just going to be a linear line where the longer you work, the bigger it gets. Other pension calculations are not necessarily going to be quite as even and linear. There may be uh, different points where, well, if you if you reach age 60, it's much higher than uh, you know retiring at age 58. And so understanding your compensation structure and understanding how your benefits are structured, understanding vesting dates, understanding your deferred compensation schedule, uh, that can also matter because, Jared, what was our first point on this? Financial freedom. So you're self-insured whenever you can live off of your assets. And so if you if you just use that 5% withdrawal rule and, you know, we're not endorsing that. We're just giving you a, a, an, an easy calculation to ask the question, am I in the ballpark? So if you think that you want to spend, let's say $12,000 a month, and you need to buy um, health insurance for a while, and you need uh, before Medicare age, and you need to pay taxes on that, and you might move to Colorado or, or Utah, and you might move to a state that that maybe has different state income tax rates. So maybe you need to take 200,000 a year in order to have 12,000 a month to live off of and taxes and health insurance premiums all of those things. So how do you know when you're able to quit work and, and, and not need insurance anymore? Well, it's when you have $4 million. That would help you understand if you're in the ballpark, right? Uh, because 5% of 4 million is 200,000. So uh, when we then think through specific oil and gas compensation structures and how different super majors structure your benefit package as well as your compensation, then we have to ask a more refined question. It's not necessarily all about financial freedom when you're self-insured. It can also be about the liquidity of your assets. And when things vest, if there's kind of cliffs and, and reasons to be a little bit more strategic about when you stay, when you go, sometimes it is as simple as, well, I now have $4 million and I really want to spend $200,000 between monthly expenses, taxes, insurance, all of those things. And sometimes it is, well, I have $2.5 million, but then I have this pension that that is a, another variable amount. And then I have deferred compensation for the first 10 years. And then I have RSUs that vest at this time, this time, this time. And so uh, just understanding, oh, and then uh, do you need to keep your assets in the 401k because you're going to leave your company in the year that you turn 55 uh, so that you can avoid the 10% early withdrawal penalty before age 59 and a half? That's another topic. Uh, some of your retirement assets are uh, liquid, able to avoid penalty um, earlier than others. And so understanding all of those things um, really helps refine that question of when are you self-insured? When do you actually reach financial freedom? Yeah, that's right. Because in the scenario you gave, you may be financially free based on you know an assumed withdrawal rate. But but you know if you're paying a ten to fifteen percent penalty tax above and beyond that first you know that distribution for the first five years, that could materially alter what's a sustainable withdrawal rate or whether or not you're sufficiently covered. So. There's really, really a lot of nuance, but thinking about, okay, what, what does financial independence look like? And then, okay, what is my, what's my liquidity? And then, okay, what assets are on the table, right? Because each employer plans different, but, 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 you know, a lot of times equity compensation isn't, is not accelerated, right? That's been granted, but not vested. Not every employer is the same, right? So think about, okay, how accessible are these things? How liquid are these things? And in the event of an untimely death, could I include these things? Those are some good good ideas to to think about related when you're thinking about your number beginning to just do back the envelope math of, of how you're positioned. 
That's a really good point. Actually, there's a lot of uh, history with Houston and um, and some of the laws around that. Uh, so I believe uh, 409A plans are deferred compensation and was chatting about that topic recently uh, with some friends. But deferred compensation and 409A, essentially, after Enron happened, different legislation came through with deferred compensation plans to basically make it to where you cannot accelerate some of those payments because that's what you know, Enron executives were doing accelerating deferred compensation payments to avoid being a creditor of the company in bankruptcy. And so there are strict rules around the timeframes with deferred compensation. But also you mentioned another uh, point that I want to hit on real quick, early 10% withdrawal penalty. Let's say that you want to retire at 52. You do have an out, right? 72T. 72T is in our tax code. It allows you to take periodic equal payments over a uh, period of time and avoid the 10% penalty. But Jared, what if you mess up on that? And Or what if you have no idea that that's there and you just start taking 401k or IRA distributions? Well, 10% of 200,000 from the example we just used, that's a pretty big number. 10% to 200,000 a year over a seven, eight year period. Well, that, yeah, that, that's a material impact on your ability to be self-insured and, and financially free. And so there's so many just intricate points. One thing I, I tell, and, and I probably sound like I'm beating the dead horse here, but one thing I talk about a lot is there's five areas of financial planning and all five areas interact with each other. You cannot do, so the five areas, estate planning, insurance, uh, tax planning, investments, managing your portfolio, and uh, retirement income. So all five areas of these are are very connected. You can't enter, you can't treat one of the five in a vacuum. And so we're talking about life insurance right now. We're talking about when do you hit financial freedom? I mean, that's a lot of retirement income, but understanding your tax situation is going to have a huge impact on your ability for how much income can you take and understanding, well, what accounts are liquid versus what accounts are still going to be subject to a 10% penalty, that has a huge impact on how you position your portfolio. If you have four different accounts with three different tax registrations, they should not all be invested the same. Also impacts parts of your estate plan. And so all of these items uh, work with each other. And so it's fun to fun to think through these problems. Yeah. And we'll tackle some of the other financial planning related items in the coming weeks. But if you have any questions about this or how it applies to your specific scenario, feel free to shoot us an email podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks. And we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.